Alright, let's turn the volume up a bit, and this is how we start. Hello everybody, and welcome to the People Who Surf podcast. I am Chris Morrow, your host, and my goal with the show is simple, to introduce you to people sitting right next to you in the lineup. I believe that if you know where to look, you'll find more fascinating characters in the water today than ever before. So my hope is to bring you candid conversations with unsung heroes, intriguing personalities, and individuals shaping opinion both in the water and out. My guest today is Don Craig, somebody who checks all those boxes. His father, Doug, was surfing in and around Hermosa Beach all the way back during the Depression. And by the time Don and his little brother, Tom, were coming of age in the 50s and 60s, L.A. South Bay was surfing's epicenter. Groundbreaking board makers like Dale Velzi, Hap Jacobs, Dewey Weber, and Bing Copeland had all set up shop near 22nd Street. Don was then and remains now a master of beautiful style. In his teens, he was recruited to the prestigious Win and Sea Surf Club, surfing under the watchful eyes of notables like Skip Fry, Mike Hinson, Ron Stoner, and Henry Ford. And when it came time to get a job, he played key roles in the birth of the modern-day surf industry, helping launch Quicksilver and Rip Curl before spending 30 more years as a beloved independent rep. His biggest business success, however, came in his 50s, when a little side hustle he launched called Old Guy's Rule caught fire. Don certainly is an old guy who rules. He's 70 years old now and still ripping down at San Onofre on a regular basis. He's been an active club member there since childhood. I joined him in his home of 30 years down in San Clemente, and we sat in his amazing man cave, which houses one of the best collections of surf memorabilia in existence. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, Don Craig, welcome. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic, and um, apparently so are you. You just turned seven years old. Happy belated birthday. And, uh, thanks very much. And Did you ever think, you know, when you were 30, you'd still be ripping at 70 years old? I, I always had a benchmark because I watched my dad. Uh, my dad surfed till he was 80 years old, so that's kind of my benchmark now is to try to surf till I'm at least 80. Uh, I've got a friend that I surf with almost every morning down at San Onofre that's 83 right now. We call him Ageless Larry, and, and he still goes out there. He still gets his share waves. And so uh, I think just as long as you're out there having fun, that's the most important thing. Was there ever a period where, you know, you backed away or pulled away or you were too busy? Or have you had a pretty consistent relationship with surfing the whole time? Uh, I've had a consistent relationship with surfing my whole life. Uh, the only time I did back away from it was when I went in the service. I was, uh, was going to be drafted. I was number 10 on the draft lottery. So I ended up having to join the Naval Air Reserve, and I was uh, away from surfing for about six months. I was in Memphis, Tennessee, but that's the longest stretch I've ever had not being around the ocean. And wow. And so when you were done with that, where did you end up? Uh, back in Newport Beach. Um, uh, my folks were living there at the time, and so I came back to Newport, lived there, and um, just continued surfing. That's when boards went from being, like when I went into the service, and this was in just a, sh- a short time, six months, I went from riding a 9.6. When I got out, I was like, everybody's on seven to eight foot boards, and so I'm down to eight foot board right away. Wow. Yeah. So the whole shortboard revolution happened while you were in, in, in Memphis? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's crazy. We should obviously mention, can't get away from talking about the fact that you are Mr. Old Guy's Rule. You're living proof of it now. And this is a company that you yourself started. What year did you start that company? Uh, 2003. 
kind of just by accident, really. Um, my dad and two of his friends down at San Onofre were always known as the three wise men. Uh, my dad was the president of an electronics firm. Uh, one of the guys was a real successful stockbroker. The other was a professor at uh, UCI. And we always looked up to them uh, and asked them for advice as we were growing up. So I have a friend down at the beach that makes stickers. I said, hey, make me up a little sticker that says old guys roll and put a little surfboard running through it. So he did, and he gave me about 20 of them. So I, I put them on uh, my car, my dad's car, and gave them to all his friends and stuff down at the beach. And I'd worked in the surf industry for about 30 years, and I was uh, on an appointment up in the South Bay. I was living in, in Newport at the time. Um, on an appointment, uh, no, it's actually, I was living here in San Clemente uh, at the time. And I was on an appointment up at, uh, at Dive and Surf, and uh, Ronnie Meister walked me out after the appointment and uh, saw the sticker on the side of my car. And he goes, hey, where'd you get that sticker? And I said, I had a maid. And he goes, I'll buy 100 of those off you. I go, really? What are you going to do with them? And he goes, I'm going to sell them to the store and give them to all my friends. I said, God, the light bulb went on. And, and I just went, hey, you think you sell some T-shirts? He goes, yeah, do some T-shirts up. We'll see how those go, you know, kind of thing. Uh-huh. So we did three surf shirts out of the gate, and it just took off. And I went, God, not everybody's dad surfs. There's, you know, fishermen, they just, they know what lures to use. They know to look for the birds to see, if, you know, where the, where the fish are biting. And, uh, you know, the car guy can just listen to an engine. I'm just going, God, there's cars and motorcycles and, you know, everything. So it's just kind of took on a life of its own. Was it, now, was it purely surf in the early going, though? In the very first, the first three designs were all surf. The next design was a fishing design. And then the fifth design was, uh, was a golf design. So, and I just went, God, everybody, you know, everybody's dad's different, but they've all learned through experience and come up with these, uh, you know, ways of handling whatever they did, you know, kind of thing. So with, through their experience and wisdom, you know, it's such poetic justice in, in my mind that, you know, here you are, this is 2003. So you're, you're, you're just in your fifties, which is an old guy already in the surf industry. Right. And you decide to start something new. And this thing just became a smashing success for you. I, I got to say, I was really lucky there in that, um, you know, I, I had a lot of dealers that I dealt with out there. And I always have said to other reps that are, you know, want to be reps and stuff, my most valuable asset out there was all the retailers that I built a rapport with over the years. Uh, I built a trust with them. And they would at least look at whatever I brought to the table. So when I brought this in, they go, yeah, we'll give it a try. And guy Monday morning, they're calling me up. Would you give me three dozen? Give me six dozen. We sold all of them. And I'm going, what? Really? You know, kind of thing. And they're calling me, you know. But uh, again, I got to thank all those retailers that really believed in me and and, uh, gave me the chance in their stores. And for what it's worth, it is global now, this thing. And... Yeah, if you want to call it that. We're in Australia, Scandinavia, uh, a little bit of Europe. Uh, we're in the U.K., um, uh, Canada, and the United States. And things are as good as ever? Yeah, it's still going great. <laughs> I just, just see the big smirk on, on your face right now. Knock on wood, it's still going, you know. I just, much to my surprise. I mean, I thought it would be like a big Johnson's that was, yeah. you know, in for six years and then gone, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, we get new old guys all the time. There's so the, Yeah, it's an, uh, the demographic is not going away. I was going to say it was it was meant to be worn as a badge of honor, and it's been received that way. And so I'm really I'm really stoked that that's you know that's the way it's received. So that's so cool. Yeah. Well, look, I want to go back now to your upbringing because you've been surfing almost as long as you can remember. I imagine, given that your dad was such an early surfer, mm-hmm. how did your dad describe his upbringing in surfing to you guys? Because when did he start? You know, what was it like for him? Uh, my dad grew up in Ontario, California, 
and his dad passed away. And so they sold their uh, farm that they had out there. I guess they had an orange grove out there. They sold that, and they they bought a house. Uh, my grandmother, and she had two boys, uh, Doug and Rod, and they moved down to Hermosa Beach. And so my dad picked it, and this was when my dad was about oh, 12 or 13 years old. He was born in 21, so, you know, right around um, the Depression. Right. So right after the Depression stuff, he's, he's down there on the beach in Hermosa Beach, and Here's these guys on paddle boards and things like that. So he took up surfing at, at a very early age, at about 14. They were riding paddle boards and then went into, like, the redwood boards after that, and then balsa wood came along. How often was he getting in the water, you think? He surfed pretty much every weekend. Um, you know, all the guys that lived in that Hermosa Beach area. We lived on 19th Street in Hermosa Beach, which was three blocks south of 22nd Street. That was kind of the hub of surfing at the time. It really was the epicenter. I mean, we should point that out that the south bay in basically the 50s and 60s was the, the original episode. surf city yeah i mean it really was there was uh, all the best manufacturers there you had hap jacobs greg knoll bing uh dewey weber was right there and then there was a handful of other you know uh manufacturers and stuff to rick surfboards and shoal and all kinds of different people up there and so what camp did you guys sort of grow up in in terms of you know you have a younger brother as well um who's great surfer, lives up north, was managing the Hearst Castle. That was part of his he was, job. He was the resident landscape architect up there at Hearst Castle. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I he mean, had a great job up there. Such an amazing job. But you guys, I mean, what was the, what did the surfing landscape look like for you as a grommet? Well, my first, my first remembrance of going surfing was going out with my dad on his board and, and just holding onto the nose and eating, you know, spray coming in your face and stuff like that. Um, my dad got um, got a hold of some some balsa wood and started shaping our first surfboards. Um, he made probably my first six surfboards. Um, five of them that were, or excuse me, four of them were balsa wood, um, all hand shaped and everything like that. He glassed them in our garage, did the whole thing. I actually have one here in my man cave wow. that was my second surfboard. I, I actually got it back uh, through one of the collector groups, and that, that's a long story. But anyway. Um, so he made my first four balswood boards. Then foam started coming in, and he he and uh, a guy named Don Guild got a formula for blowing foam. They built a concrete mold in our garage, <laughs> and tried to blow foam in our garage, but could never get a full blank out of it because they would start to pour the stuff into the into the mold itself, and it would just start expanding, and they couldn't get it all the way poured, and the, and the thing closed down to get a full <laughs> blank out of it. So uh, my dad somehow got a blank from somebody, and he made my very first foam board. And along the way also, he made um, – when balsawood boards are glued out, they're glued up as a rectangle. You know, it's just a bunch of four-by-four four pieces that are, you know, 10 feet long. Mm -hmm. And then they, they cut out a template, and then there's, there's like four corners left there. So I would save the corners, and my dad made me a seven-foot round tail – balsa wood scrap balsa wood board just out of scraps he glued it all up and stuff wow. i've got a couple of pictures that leroy granis took of me on it. oh that's amazing. it's pretty cool i could show you those in the office there but that so i mean you shot with guys like leroy uh-huh that's amazing what was he like really a cool guy he lived uh, right up the hill from us he lived on 22nd street um and and monterey which is uh it was about maybe three blocks from our house four blocks from our house 
And we would, you know, he would come down to the beach and he'd shoot anywhere between 22nd Street and 19th Street. He'd just kind of, wherever the waves were best or the guys were out. Um, Hoppy Swartz, uh, who started the USSA and... and NS- the father of basically amateur surfing. Exactly. Right. Uh, Hoppy lived uh, between 20th and 21st Street on the Strand. And Leroy lived just up the hill on 22nd Street. A lot of the guys would leave their boards at either Hoppy Swartz house or they'd leave them two doors over at the Donahue's house. Hmm. And like Ricky Hatch and Bill um, Bill Bagley, Tom Brooks, and all these guys that were real good surfers back then and stuff, they'd all go down and, and surf. And so Leroy would come down and shoot them. And we'd, you know, we'd kind of get in the mix too, you know, as kids and, you know, try not to get in their way, you know. <laughs> but well, that's so cool. It was, it was really fun. And, and then we would go up to Leroy's house um, when he's developing photos and I still have some of the proofs he would do. If he was going to do a blow up of somebody, mm. he would do a proof of just the guy, you know, kind of thing, just of either his face or just part of his body or something like that to make sure it was clear. Wow. And then and then he'd do the blow up, you know, kind of thing. Neat. And we would and, and then he'd throw those away. So we would keep all those things. I've still got a bunch of his old proof sheets and things like that. that That's amazing. You know, that he, you know, just tossed. That's amazing. And he was just a neat guy. Really, really good family guy. In fact, he gave me one of his, his big. Have you ever seen this big produced book that he made? Yeah, yeah. the coffee table one. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. yeah. He gave amazing. me one of those. Yeah, that thing really was neat. amazing. Um, you mentioned it, but surf movies and when they came out, because obviously from the time you were a Grammy, photos were hard to come by, let's just say, mm-hmm. and they weren't frequent. Then the magazines come, and at first the magazines were bi-monthly, you know, and then the frequency. First they were quarterly. Yeah, quarterly, exactly. <laughs> so... Um, how often, when you were a Grom growing up in the South Bay, would a surf movie kind of come around? Was it like a once a year thing? Yeah, I think about once or twice a year, something like that. Uh, Greg Knoll would usually start his, and they'd show him right at Pier Avenue, uh, Pier Avenue Junior High School, which was where I went to junior high. So, what was? Tell me what the scene was like when that would happen. They like, have a little auditorium there, and in fact, they still show movies and stuff in there. Um, it was it was definitely a happening. They'd put posters up around town, and we'd go around and we'd pull them off the poles and put them on our you know little bulletin boards in our in our rooms. Um, but you know everybody'd have to be at that movie, you know, kind of thing. And, that was the scene. You oh were, yeah, it you, was you know, and, and you know there'd be jock straps throwing through the audience or something like that. Guys are flipping <laughs> bottle caps at the screen, and in the early days. Um, the movies were narrated by whoever took it. Like if Greg Knoll did it or John Severson or, or Bruce Brown, they would sit there and narrate the thing. That's amazing. And people and, were quiet enough to listen to that. Well, huh? people would listen to it and then somebody would throw out a comment and then they'd, they'd throw back another one, you know, kind of thing. You know, they were pretty good at ad-libbing. It was yeah. really fun. That's beautiful. Yeah, it was really good. So you, you know, the thing that fascinates me about your South Bay upbringing, you just, you know, you've been talking about all these shapers, Jacobs, Bing, Dewey Weber, Velzi was right down the street. I mean, this, these are icons of shaping in the early industry and stuff like that. You got to be just rubbing elbows with all those guys. You've known them all. Yeah, and, and I still get to see a lot of them today with the exception of Velzi, obviously, and stuff. I'm still in touch with Bing. Just talked to him last week. Um, Velzi had a shop in, in Hermosa Beach, and Dewey Weber used to work in the shop in the wintertime, and he was a lifeguard at the end of our street in the summertime. Well, he saw us surf and stuff, and, and, and he decided he was going to start making surfboards. So he told my brother and I, he says, I'll make you any size, any shape, anything you want it for eighty-three fifty. <laughs> so we're going, Dad, Dewey said he'd make us a board, you know, kind of thing. So 
<laughs> you know, he he uh, he made our first uh, couple of you know, production foam surfboards. So we got, you know, the first one we, we had to pay for. So I sold my old board for 65 bucks. had to make up the difference for the 8350 That was expensive back then, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Good. But but not really. I mean, it was boards were probably going for $100 or something. Then, okay. You know, it wasn't that much more. All right. In nowadays terms. But, you know, back then it was a lot. So anyway, so uh, Dewey, uh, Dewey made my first uh, foam production board. And then I needed, you know, I, I used that one up uh, for a year or two or something, or a year and a half. And then uh, I wanted to go on to the next one, and so I just started trading boards. So I started getting free boards from him. He then moved out of the area. He moved out of the South Bay and up to Play Del Rey. Mm. And he started manufacturing. His shop was up off Lincoln Boulevard up in, I want to say, Venice or yeah. Play Del Rey, that area. A little further north. Yeah, it was a little further north. So he was out of the area and stuff. Well, Bing Copeland moved in the 20th Street. We lived on 19th Street. So he comes down the beach. He sees a surf, and he goes, hey, come up to the factory. I'm going you know, to give you a new board, you know. Bring your old one up here kind of thing. So we just all of a sudden we're getting free boards from Bing, both my brother and I. Wow. And it was just really cool. My brother ended up working in the shop up there as kind of the cleanup guy and stuff like that. And there's some fun stories in there, too, about making some boards in there on the weekends when, when Bing wasn't there. <laughs> Um, but then uh, from there, uh, I was asked to uh, become a member of the Jacob Surf Team. Uh, one of the guys that worked, Mike O'Neill, used to w- uh, live behind a friend of mine, uh, Sparky Hudson, over on 17th Street, and he saw surf and wanted us on, you know, wanted us to be, wanted me to be on the surf team stuff. So I went over to Jacob Surf Team. My brother stayed with Bing, and uh, so that was kind of our, our South Bay upbringing. But up in the South Bay, there were so many good surfers to look up to. Uh, from Pef Ike, and I don't know if you know Pef or not. He's got a house over on the North Shore uh, oh, wow. near the Johnsons. Uh, it's okay. right there at Pipeline. It's the very first house uh, to the left of Yukai Park there. Gotcha. It's right there. Really? Um, anyway, he was a real good surfer and kind of tall and lanky, sort of how I turned out, you know, but I always admired his surfing. And there were guys like Ricky Hatch. He lived right across the street from us in Hermosa Beach. Uh, there was Bill Bagley and then Tom Brooks and I forget his brother's name anyway uh and you know buzz schwartz and stuff like that hoppy schwartz lived over between 20th and 21st street on the on the strand there so i mean all these people were just like you know within a rock's toss of our house just kind of thing you know so i got to meet you know a lot of good guys and had a lot of um i don't want to say mentors as i was growing up you know now how early you know obviously i imagine you guys are hearing some early tales of hawaii you know the magazines are brand new and a lot of South Bay people were chasing the dream and maybe moving over there. What was that era like as sort of surf photos and everything became a little bit more accessible to you guys? When the industry started to sprout, it was really, uh, I want to say surf contests sort of came along before everybody started moving to Hawaii. Mm. Um, and that kind of opened it up because I think a lot of guys from Hawaii would come over here to compete and things like that too. But we would compete up and down the coast here, which was really fun. There were surf clubs in a lot of the cities up and down the coast. There was Winnensee down in San Diego. I was a member of, uh, in the very beginning, of uh, South Bay Surfers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, that was my first sweatshirt. Point to a there. sweatshirt up in his lo- loft, and we'll, uh, we'll stick that in the video. And then from there, I went into another club called the Dapper Dans, and that's a, that's a jacket that I recently got somebody oh, gave me. Oh, those are, those are classic club and, jackets and, right now and from there i went into uh, bay city's surf club okay and then i was asked to be in the wind and sea surf club which was extremely prestigious 
And that, that um, I was competing up and down the coast, and I got to meet all the best surfers up and down the coast. So nowadays, even no matter where I go, I always know the, the, the older guys and, and the better surfers anywhere we go. Kind all of the thing. legends, yeah. Yeah, so that worked out really well. That's but, amazing. Uh, yeah, the, the surf clubs really kind of opened it up, I think. Um, my very first trip to Hawaii was in 1965. I went with the Wind and Sea Surf Club. In fact, there's a picture of it right there. Wow. And um, This top one right here? Uh, no, that's, uh, that was a trip. That was right before that we went there. That oh, was the first trip to oh, the, bottoms. the bottom one. So that was Makaha. We went to the Makaha Contest, uh, competed in the Makaha Contest, and stayed over in Pokai Bay, which is right near Waianae there. Uh, super fun, just a great group of guys and stuff, all kids and stuff, you know, just, ha- you know, just away from home and just yeah, cutting and it just up and having wild. a blast. Yeah, just going wild. It and so really how fun. many people, I mean, how many clubs and how many people would have been going to and competing in those kinds of events? Up and down the coast here, there were, um, gosh, probably a couple of hundred, I would say. Okay. You know, kind of thing. There was a junior division and a senior division. Just fun competing with everybody up and down the coast. And again, probably the, the best life lesson for me was just meeting all these guys from up and down the coast. You know, because I still surf with a lot of them today. You know, I still surf with guys like Skip Fry and, and, you know, guys like that. That is so cool. And then how often were you going to Hawaii after that initial trip? Was it something that, you know, were you doing the North Shore thing in the late 60s or 70s? Or uh, I went, my second trip over there was in 67, I believe, 60, 67, so two years later. Um, went over with my family uh, right around Christmas time, and we stayed over for a couple of weeks and stuff and, and just had a great, great trip. We went with uh, several other families from San Onofre. Uh, they rented a condo, and they rented three cars. They had one for the kids, which was us. They had one for the dads, and they had one for the moms. So the moms could go shopping, the dads could go surfing, and the kids could just go surfing, too. That's pretty epic. It was really fun. As I mentioned at the offset, Don can usually be found these days hanging out somewhere in the San Onofre State Park, which is located right on the border of San Diego and Orange County. It's home to some of the most consistent surf on the West Coast. And if he's not in the lineup, he's usually part of the peanut gallery on the beach or one of the volunteers tending to the gardens down there. Now, I should note that San Onofre was one of the first real beachheads of surf culture in California. In the 1930s, pioneers like Lauren Whitey Harrison and Pete Peterson began transforming it into the West Coast version of Waikiki. And there was even a surf camp sign installed there along the highway. Think of it as the Depression-era version of Tabarua. But that golden age ended abruptly with the start of World War II, when the temporary marine base at Camp Pendleton became permanent. The whole area was put on lockdown through the war, and the military was still resistant to open things back up when the war ended. But a tight-knit group of respectable Sano surfers, many of whom served, negotiated with Marines. And they earned the right to self-govern their tribe. They formed a members-only club that enjoyed exclusive access to their wave-riding heaven. Naturally, it was the hottest ticket in town. Don's father, Doug Craig, was an original member and president from 1969 to 73. So the Craig family was one of the lucky ones. You pick up the story from there. For us, it was a kid's nirvana. I mean, we would, we would pack up our truck. Uh, actually, it was that we had a station wagon in the very beginning. 
Uh, we lived in Hermosa. We would drive the Coast Highway all the way down from Hermosa through Lomita and through Wilmington and through wow. Long Beach and, uh, you know, through Huntington Beach and Laguna and all that, all the way down here. We'd camp at the state park over here. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd come in after hours. The, the guard there would work from 7 to 7, you know, 7, at, seven in the morning till 7 at night. We'd show up about 8.30 at night pull in next to somebody and then go, hey, we're self-contained. We'll be gone in the morning. Do you mind if we park here next to you? They'd go, no, no problem, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so, you know, being a typical surfer, we didn't have to pay. Yeah. Oh you know, kind of thing. So we, we slid in and slid out of there. And then uh, we'd go down to San Onofre early uh, Saturday morning, surf, surf all day. Uh, my mom would cook us breakfast, lunch, and dinner down there. And uh, we'd, we'd barbecue dinner down there. And then get in the truck about 8 or 8.30 when the sun would go down, come back to the park because the ranger's gone. We'd pull up next to those people again and, hey, we're back. <laughs> we'll be gone in the morning, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, we'd go take hot showers and stuff there, too. It worked out really good. It was really fun. Isn't it amazing when you go down there today, um, you know, sure, it's changed. But in a lot of ways, it hasn't. I mean, the family vibe and everything else is still there. Um, what's your take on it today versus then? Well, it's obviously more crowded, of yeah. course, um, and it's it's still got the family vibe down there, and it's a great family beach. It still puts a smile on my face when I see some little kid just a little stink bug stance, you know, <laughs> plowing through tons of white water, as, as Jim Irwin would say in the, yeah. the old surf clubs uh, contest and stuff there. But uh, yeah, it's just really a great place to go. Um, people from all over the world come to San Onofre. It's 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 world renowned. And, uh, you know, as we were growing up and stuff, my friends, I didn't find out until later. I used to, I grew up with Mike Purpose and people like that and Drew Harrison and stuff. And, and I found out later on that those guys used to be kissing our ass all week long to see if we could, if they could come down and go to San Onofre with us, you know, because, you know, <laughs> you we're surfing the Hermosa ticket. Beach. Yeah. yeah, we had the golden ticket down here. <laughs> and we were surfing lowers and stuff like that with, with nobody else there. I mean, we'd drive in the, over the overpass and go, hey, look, that looks pretty good. Let's go down there, you know, kind of thing. So my mom would drop us off at church. My dad, my brother, and I would walk up and we'd surf, you know, with maybe another dad and his, his son. And uh, we'd be there all by ourselves, you know. It was just great. Amazing. This would have been early 60s. Early 60s. So then... Explain for the people who don't know. I mean, obviously, it was a fairly tumultuous time when Nixon moved into town, the Vietnam War. How did that all impact that whole area, the club, access to uppers, lowers, and everything? Because you lived through all that. Right. My, my dad happened to be, um, he, uh, along the way, he was on the board of directors for the San Onofre Surf Club. And he uh, happened to be president of the club when, when Nixon came in. And so... Um, Oh, yeah, there's they, a shot. They yep. decided to give Nixon an honorary membership. So they gave him a, a surfboard and a plaque. And my dad forgot to give him the sticker and the uh, and the membership card. I still have those. And it has Richard Nixon's name on it. No way. It's pretty cool. That's epic. Yeah, so I've kept that in my collection and stuff. But, uh, you know, Nixon decided he was going to open up all the coastline uh, so that it was accessible to everyone, you know, kind of thing. So my dad was the one uh, who worked with the... Uh, state parks and with the um, presidential administration because he was best friends with uh, Robert Mardian, the guy on the far left there with the glasses. Okay. Um, Robert Mardian was the attorney general. Oh, okay. Uh, for um, at that uh, period, for Nixon at okay. that at that period in his administration. Wow. So you know, and Mardian was a uh, he was a surfer from San Onofre. You're kidding. So he, you know, we knew him. In fact, uh, Robert Mardian's uh, son, Bob Mardian, uh -huh. Robert also. Uh, owns the Windsor Restaurant in Dana Point. 
Amazing. Yeah, so and and we're still really good friends and my son actually works there. So That's it's, amazing. Yeah, there's there's connection there. But anyway, so um they ended up uh opening it up and my dad was the one that kept trestles open. Uh, I've got I've got letters and a bunch of stuff that he wrote to these guys saying you gotta keep this open, you know, to the this has gotta be part of the state park. So they they opened it up from Christianitas all the way through to which Christianitas wasn't even in existence at that time. Um, but they had, you know, from the bluff there at Cotton's Point. Right. Uh, like all Cypress the way through to, yeah, uh, okay. yeah, just south of Cypress So Cove that there. included uppers, lowers, and church? Mm-hmm. Wow. With the exception of church, because church was... Always military. Uh, yeah, it's always been military, yeah, because they had the enlisted man's club there. That's what that building is up on the bluff there. I mean, wow. we, used to, we used to go up there. They'd have, uh, you could go buy submarine sandwiches and stuff like that. You know, once in a while, we'd, you know drum up 35 cents or whatever it was, you know, kind of thing. Right. You'll get a submarine sandwich there and come back to San Onofre, you know? So Nixon opened it up. Obviously, that was semi-controversial for the existing members of the club. Was that like a bummer for everybody or was that like... Well, they actually thought the club was just going to be, you know, just go out of existence. They thought that it wouldn't need to be, um, you know, because it wasn't private anymore. So they just thought, well, you know... So what they did is they had they had about, I think, 20 or 30 grand in their uh, in their kitty. And they decided to make a uh, photo annual and give it to each one of the members. So wow. I have I have some of those. Oh, that's amazing! I got one sitting over here. You know, which brings to mind, I recall when the Surfing Heritage Foundation was starting, somebody dropped off a book. I think it was a woman, and her husband used to be a photographer who went down there and shot photos and portraits of every single family hanging out. And she dropped off this book. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it had... I have it. The, you have that book? I have, a, I have a copy of it. Okay. That is amazing. What is there, is, who, who was the photographer? Tell me okay, who that Okay. What was. that was was, uh, was a guy named Don Davis. He was an architect from... Um, and this goes back, okay, back in the uh, 60s, uh, the 50s and 60s, Hollywood's depiction of surfers was just that they're just a bunch of bums. Right. Because they all dressed in t-shirts and shorts. They all just sort of dressed alike. And that's what it was like down there at San Onofre. There was no hierarchy down there. Everybody was just, you know, one of the guys down there. Well, this guy, uh, Don Davis, had a Polaroid camera, and he decided to put together this journal. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab the thing real quick yeah, for you. Yeah, do it. Yep. Here, I'm gonna this go. It's okay. Oh, you might have to take your headphones off real quick. Yeah, actually... I was actually the one that brought the book up to the museum. Oh, were you? Okay. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, Don Davis uh, had this journal, and that's what it looked like. Wow. Okay. And so when he passed away, I knew the thing existed. And so I, uh, I, call, I, I uh, called his wife, and I said, hey, is there any way I can get a, a copy of it or get, get the book, you know, kind of thing. And so she made me this copy of it. That's amazing. So this is he and his wife and a little explanation as to what it is and stuff, too. Yeah. Amazing. 1960 to 64. Yeah. So so what he did is he he would take a picture of of different people in front of their rig on the beach. Go through a couple pages there. Okay. He would write down everyone's name that's in the picture, uh, what their address was, phone number, and at that time there were no area codes. Yeah. And and what they did for a living. If you look in the lower corner there, you'll see what they did for a living. Chemistry professor, UCLA. Yeah, that was uh, that Production. was Dr. Don Cram. Killcat. And he was known as Crambo down there, and uh, he was just one of the guys down at the beach, you know. Don Smith, 
tool and die maker. Okay, Don Smith was the guy that uh, made the original San Onofre Surf Club logo. So he came up with that. Lucille Dale Dresser, statistician. Lieutenant Lawrence A. Carlson. USMC, USMC, yeah. And we're still I'm still, in friends, uh, still friends with them. I remember going through this book with Mickey Munoz uh-huh. up at the foundation, and he was just blown away looking through it. And he pointed to this tiny little kid. He goes, that guy's my doctor now. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just so fa- This is just amazing. It's pretty cool. This is amazing, and I will get some photos to show. So we have some video and stuff on that. That is and and is she still alive now? She's still alive. And what happened with the uh, okay? So uh, I got this copy and I took it up to uh, Surfer's Journal and showed Steve and everybody up there. And they go, "Oh, we want to use some of these in the magazine." So they used a couple, they took a couple pictures of them and used a few of them. And then um, the, I took it by the museum and they said, "God, that's great. We'd like to get the original and scan this into our archives." Right. So I I looked up in the in the book here. I looked up their uh, their phone number, okay? And there's a phone number here somewhere. Yeah, right here, Geneva. Yeah. And that's the number. Okay, so there were no area codes before that. That's so, amazing. So I called that number, okay? I, knew uh-huh. that, I know they live in Long Beach. Uh, so I called that number with 562 because I know that's yeah. the area code. So this guy answers, and he go, I said, is Ginny Davis there? And he goes, no. He says, I know how to get a hold of her. Who's calling? And I said, well, uh, this is an old family friend. I'm just trying to reach out to her and stuff. And he goes, well, this is uh, this is Don Davis's old practice. I bought his architectural practice. Oh wow! Okay, great. So he gives me her home number. So I call her at home, and and she sends the the book down. They scan it at the at the museum, and they get all the photos and the whole thing. Right. And they're showing it around to everybody and stuff. And they go, we'd like to make this into a coffee table book. And they, and I'm thinking, God, that's that'd be bitching. That'd, that'd be, be so really cool. fun. You yeah. know, that'd be super cool. And. Uh, so we got right to about the eleventh hour, and the lady uh, Jenny Davis said she she says, "You know what? I can't do it." And we said, "Why not?" And she says, um, "Because too many people still live at the same address and have the same phone number, it's and just... I'd be giving away private information. I can't do that." Yeah. I went, okay, it's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. You know, kind of thing. And yeah, that was it. You know, kind of thing. Yeah. But I mean, the thing still exists, and I have I have probably one of the only copies of it. It is amazing. Yeah, but like this guy, Dr. Don Cram. Yep. He was one of our best friends down there, a super neat guy, guitar player and stuff like that. He lived in Bel Air. He was a professor at UCLA, chemistry professor. Well, at one point, he won a Nobel Prize for some sort of molecular discovery. And I'm just going, you know, and he'd show up at the beach with those little, like, tinker toy looking things, you know, with a foam ball and the sticks coming out and the little balls on the ends and stuff. And my dad and his buddies would always kind of, you know, muck with the things. And he probably came out of the water one day with, that's it, you know, kind (laughs) of. Isn't that amazing, though? Like, but, that, that's one of those other fascinating things about, even to this day at San Onofre, is that you just never know the type of person who's sitting next to you in the lineup. Exactly. Because they're dressed just like you. They're in a wetsuit or whatever, or, or they're in shorts and a t-shirt on the beach, you know? And they're not trying to big-time you if they are, you know? Not at all. It's just... It, it was a great equalizer down there. And that's the one thing about San Onofre, and it's always been that way, you know? And everybody just, they kibitz with each other down there at the beach. Oh, I saw you eat it on that waiver. <laughs> hey, you took off in front of that girl. What yeah. was that all about, you know, kind of thing? <laughs> yeah. But they just, uh, they give, you know, it's just really funny how, you know, things like that happen. Is this your family right here? Oh, my gosh. Look at you guys. Oh, great. I've got a blow-up of it, too. 19th Street, Hermosa Beach. Yeah. Man. So this was just one of those weekends. Look at that rig of yours. Yeah, 1960. That was our first truck. We had a second one after that. 
Look at your mom. That's so epic. That's her right there, too. Oh, my gosh. Now, was she getting in the water, too? No. You know, I only knew my mom to go in the water twice in my life. Wow. And it was absolutely, like, flat. She didn't like to swim. Right. And she, But she was just such a great support for uh, all of us boys, my dad, my brother, and I. She was just on board on the Always, trip. Always, you know. And she was just really well organized. I mean, she, she'd pack up our whole weekend, you know, and food and all that kind of stuff, you know. And, oh, it's just great. Look at that. 1960. That is awesome. Yeah, bitchin'. Such a cool shot. Yeah. He and I were the salesman there. He was kind of the lead guy. I was the number two guy there. And um, I was also, um, I was an architectural major in school, so I went to work for the architect across the street. Well, actually, he was, he was over on Bayside Drive, and he came to me and he said, uh, hey, I've, I've um, just bought all this property from Woody's Wharf to the Crab Cooker to the Bay, uh, and I need a property manager for there. And, and he goes, would you be interested? I went, he goes, I'll pay you twice as much as what I'm paying you right now. I went, yeah. You know, I'd just gotten married and stuff. And I'm just thinking, wow, what a great opportunity. So uh, I go to work for this architect as a property manager um, over there in, on Newport Boulevard. And so he goes, we need some tenants for this place. And I went, Russell, you hate your, you, you hate your landlord. Let's just move across over here and you'll be good kind of thing. So uh, we struck, struck him up a deal and, and Blurk says, how much space do you need? And we walked it off in the building there and he goes, well, how about from here to here and from here to here? And he, okay. And they just built a wall, and Russell came in there, put his, all his wood walls up there, and he was, in, he was in, and Paul was a salesman there. So I'm working there as a, as a property manager and stuff. And then at that stage, Quicksilver had just come to town, mm. and Bob and Jeff had just gotten the license for that. And they approached me and said, hey, we want you to be our sales rep. And I'm, I'm thinking, gosh, you know, board shorts, I don't know, you know. Um, because you know, board shirts was like, it was a category, but not necessarily like it wasn't in every store, right? I mean, that you knew it was of. All, I mean, yeah, people sold boards; they didn't sell yeah, shorts. That's it, it. They just sold surfboards, maybe t-shirts, right? And and very few of those as it was. Maybe just their logo, and that was it. So anyway, um, I, uh, I I tried to work my full time job at that time. I was married, had a child, and a mortgage, and I was trying to work my full time job. And uh, tried to go out and sell for Quicksilver at four in the afternoon. I sort of sensed retailers were so hired. Like a, this was like home. a side hustle. It was like a thing. side hustle, yeah. yeah. And and so after about a month, I went I went back to Bob and Jeff and I said, "Look, I don't feel like I can do your product justice. You need somebody out there full time." And and I said, "You know, I can't quit my day job. You know, it's a commission only thing. I can't. You know, I got a wife and a kid. You know." And they said, "Ah, hang in there. We got this wetsuit brand. It's our next door neighbor down in Australia. We're going to recommend you do that." And I went. Yeah, sure, okay. And then about a month later, Brian and Claus showed up. Well, in the meantime, they hired Tom Holbrook, who was a bartender at night. He was single, uh, had his days free and stuff, and he ended up being like the guy at Quicksilver. Yeah, he's and been, he, he went was there on forever. To, yeah, he yeah. was there forever, and great guy, and, and they couldn't have picked a better guy. Right. So it worked out really good. So anyway, um, Brian and Claw come over, and they've got four boxes of wetsuits. So we struck up a deal with them, where I, and I, I talked to the architect, and I said, look, I'd like to go part-time with you and, and try this other thing out part-time, too. And they said, okay, fine. And so Ripco paid me a, a small salary, and then the, uh, the architect paid me a small salary, but I never went backward. So that worked out really good. So I worked for about a year doing that, mm. uh, just part-time with both. 
and uh, set up a warehouse. I went out and, you know, I worked like four days a week selling rip curl, and three days a week I was working for the architect there. And how far up and down the coast were you roaming at that point? Uh, probably L.A. to uh, San Diego, I guess, probably Ocean Beach. Okay. Further north, who was handling that? Did you have somebody else handle that, or...? Eventually, yes. Uh, Brian and Claude decided that they wanted to um, expand the business, and they wanted an image center. And mm. I went, I've got the spot. And that was Trestles. And that was the one down there at Trestles. And it was right next to where Carl's Jr. is now, or where Del Sol, uh, yep. that little uh, Mexican place. Yep. That was the old Del, uh, Del Cannon surf shop. I mean, there's still resin on the walls and stuff in there. Wow. Uh, it was 2,800 square feet. And I said, I've got the spot. So we go down there, we rent the building out. And right at that time, the bridge that went across the freeway was right there at that street. Mm. So everybody had to park right at that building to go surf trestles. And there were no, yeah, there were no locals. Uh, you know, there weren't a lot of locals in San Clemente, uh, like local surf shops. There just weren't any. I think it was maybe, the end of the road. You yeah, know, it was the end of the road, it, basically. It's the yeah. end of the road. Yeah, it went into Camp Pendleton, yeah. which is just the abyss out there kind yeah. of thing. So anyway, uh, so we set that up, and in the meantime, they widened the freeway and they moved the the bridge down to Christianitas, and by that time, we were established, and that worked out really good. So we were in that little building for a couple of years, and they um, decided that they wanted to expand, and so the Nixon Museum had bought the building that they're in right now, where Rip Curl is now, mm. and... They uh, they they bought that old building. The Nixon Museum was supposed to be finished in April and be on all the bus tours hmm. up and down the coast here. Well, it didn't get finished until like July or something like that. So it missed all the bus tours. They had all their stops all set up and stuff. And so instead of having a couple hundred people a day coming through there, they only had like, you know, maybe five or ten people a day coming in there. So mm. they decided to close that thing up and eventually. And so they sold the building. And the Rip Curl guy goes, we'll take that, you know, kind of thing. So they oh, ended so up buying it. got a pretty good deal on it. So they got a good deal yeah. on it. It's, you know, it's down at the end of San Clemente, again, yeah. back out in, the, out in the abyss there kind of thing. Right. So, but they had established themselves by then. Amazing. So, yeah, it was really cool. And so how many years then did you do with Rip Curl? Gosh, I worked for Rip Curl for, uh, from 78 to about 85 or 6 or 7, somewhere in there. Okay. So that was, I mean, that was the birth of pro surfing, like the modern day pro surfing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a kid my age who was kind of impacted pretty heavily by that generation and that period, it was an interesting time. Oh, absolutely. Out of the first two years that I had Rip Curl, I'd say at least 18 months I had someone from Rip Curl staying with me. If it wasn't Brian, it was Claw. If it wasn't Claw, it'd be Wayne Lynch and Terry Fitzgerald or Derek Hind, or just, you know, different people that they would ship over here from Australia and say, hey, can you take care of these guys kind of thing, you know? <laughs> We'd end up having to drive them around to surf shops and do all kinds of stuff. It was pretty fun. Yeah, good times. I'm still in touch with all those guys, too. You know, I still, I haven't seen Fitz in a while, but uh, talked to Wayne not too long ago. He was just here in town. Oh, wow. And uh, and like I said, Derek was in town as well. Right. Uh, yeah, Fitz I haven't seen in a few years. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it was pretty fun. And then, you know, you jumped around, you went... To O'Neill, I think, for a time. After after I uh, I went through, uh, in the late 80s, I went through a divorce. Mm-hmm. And um, I left Rip Curl. Uh, they had hired a guy above me. They wanted to take the, the company to uh, pretty high numbers. And, and they wanted somebody that had production background, which I had none. Mm. And they wanted somebody that had you know some banking background, which I didn't have any bank- banking background at all. 
So they hired a guy from Ectalon Racquetball Rackets who had taken the com- their company from three to 15, which is basically what they wanted to do here. And so uh, he came in, we redesigned all the wetsuits, and that's when they came out with the AgriLite, the Dawn Patrol, the Insulator, and all those really cool wetsuits. Right. Well, they forgot to phase out all the old wetsuits. Oh, geez. And at that stage, they ended up with uh, almost $700,000 of, of inventory that they didn't know what to do with because it's like wetsuits. What do you do with them? You can only sell them to surfers. They only and have the surfers like, want the new stuff, right? They want the new multi-density stuff. You know? Yeah. So like the old T32s and those things were like old news. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> I remember right. That's, that's, I remember Cause those ads, that ad campaign and everything with the, the Agrilite insulator, Dawn patrol, that was, that they was were great. Yeah. Shane was, Haran and yeah. all those guys in there and stuff. Yeah. It was fantastic. That was the game changing era. And trestles too was like, you would hear rumors of those guys being in town for being in the dark as we were during the seventies period where California was really kind of backwater compared to Hawaii and Australia and everything like that to get the stars somewhere around, like where we could actually touch them. Exactly. was a big they deal. They just saw them in the magazines or, or in a video somewhere. Right. And videos weren't even kind of, it was of like then. a film. No. Yeah. It was, it was like film. you saw a surf movie and that was it. You know? Yeah. It was surf film. Like the Miramar, you know, movie night was a big deal. Yep. And, um, and then there was magazines. Otherwise, you never saw them. Exactly. And then, but that's also why pro surfing and those early OP pros were such a big deal. Exactly. Could you have ever seen where that was going? Like, did you guys ever see the industry getting as big as it got there for a while? No, you know, in fact, uh, I got to say, the guys from Quicksilver, I, I was so proud for, for Bob and, and Jeff and, and uh, Danny and all those guys that, and Tom Holbrook, how well they did with Quicksilver. I mean, Bob in the beginning didn't imagine making a million dollars, let alone being a billion dollar company at some stage, you know, and, uh, you know, you just sort of took it as it went. I mean, we went through some, some years in the early nineties when the industry took a big dive. I mean, Quicksilver lost about a third of their business or something like that, you know, and then just kind of clawed their their way back in. But I, I saw how smart they were about, um, keeping the roots of their, their business strong. You know, kind of thing. Uh, I watched where OP, I think, made the mistake of, you know, they sold all the surf shops. And then, you know, these the the May Company and the Broadway and all these people, these big companies came to them and said, we want to, you know, we want your stuff in our stores. And they went, God, we got a chance to make, you know, 80% of our money with these guys, you know, these few guys and stuff like that. Well, then it wasn't cool to be in the surf shops. You know, OP kind of divorced itself from the surf shops. And Quicksilver and those guys, really, they, they learned that lesson that, yeah. You know, we got to keep that tree strong. We got to keep those roots stimulated and still grow the tree strong. We can still go to those those other places, but we need to keep those roots stimulated. So yeah, it's interesting because there were so many brands that that made that same error. Like, in fact, Gotcha was one of them in mm-hmm. a way. Right. They that early '90s recession you talk about. They were so cool in the '80s especially early 80s. Oh, yeah, with Neon and all that. Yeah, and just like, and Shane Haran and the whole thing. And yeah, then, yeah. And, and then Potter, yeah. They went complete streetwear. They went all in on the street <laughs> thing in, in the early 90s, and they kind of abandoned that, like, surf is dead. Yeah. And it bit them in the butt because they had to basically come back with MCD and try that whole thing. And exactly. It was, uh, it was an interesting time. It really was. And you've seen so many cyclical trends, and it's it's interesting because... I'm looking around. We're in your man cave right now. I'm looking at your amazing collection, which we'll um, show. We'll have links to and stuff. How early did you start keeping holding on to these things? Was this just a childhood obsession of yours? Because uh, you were collecting things, it seems to me, long before this whole thing became in vogue. 
I, I've collected ever since I very first started surfing. Uh, I have my very first surfer magazine. I have uh, a collection from the very first one all the way through to today. I have all of them. Um, and for I, what it's worth, there aren't very many people who have a full collection. And when I worked at Surfer Magazine, and sometimes I needed old issues that were very hard to find, I would you were the first guy up. I called. <laughs> I'm like, Don? <laughs> yep, got it right here. What do, yeah, what do you need? It's so funny. But I think I started off uh, collecting surf posters. And like all these ones that you see behind you here, most of the, those like are all movie copies. premieres and stuff. Yeah, just surf movies. When a movie would come to town, um, you know, like let's say John Severson or Greg McGilvery or whoever would go and put posters up around town. Well, we as kids, we'd pull them off and they went, they went on our bulletin board. We had a little bulletin board in, in our uh, downstairs bedroom. My brother and I each had our own little mm. space. Yep. And we had our posters up there and stuff. Well, I just hung on to all of mine. I just, I just thought they were cool, you know, kind of thing. And they, they bring back memories of my youth. Um, back, back then, you saw a surf movie. You saw it one time. You saw Phil Edwards or Mike Doyle or somebody make a move, and you go, "Wow, I got to learn that move," you know, kind of thing. Yeah, and you couldn't rewind back then. You couldn't. <laughs> there, there was there was no, no rewind. There was no yeah. There was no VCR. There was no video. There was no you know. You, you only saw it one time. In the but theater. You had it was yeah. embedded in your mind what that guy did, you know. And wow. Yeah, just you know, different things. Uh, I remember competing against a guy named Rick Irons one time in a Jacob surfing contest, and he's coming at me on this wave, and he walks up and he hangs five. And then all of a sudden he does this kick in front of me and I went, wow, you know, he's coming right at me doing this, you know, and that was, a, and then we had to learn that move, you know, yeah. kind of thing. And, you know, it's the same way with, I think other kids are influenced nowadays. Well, videos, it really helps them. They can, uh, you know, watch how a guy spins a board around or, you know, whatever he does, oh, yeah. you know, they kind of thing, or how he hits the lip or how he, he comes out the doggy door or whatever. They, they yeah. slow-mo it 15 million times. Exactly, they, yeah. The, the I, whole kinesiology thing, they send it to their kinesiologist and say, can you tell me that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny because you, you mentioned Rick Irons. Obviously, he was another South Bay guy. Mm-hmm. You're talking about um, the uncle of Andy and Bruce Irons. That's right. His son was Rick Irons Jr., who I worked with at Surfer Magazine, a pipe guy. That's right. And, you know, there were a lot of those South Bay guys who did make the sojourn and and transplanted themselves to Hawaii. Uh I think think Jack Johnson's dad, Jeff Johnson, was another one. Uh, Supposedly he grew up in Hermosa or something like that, but I didn't know him back then. Oh, you didn't? Okay. Uh -uh. Yeah. I've never met the Johnsons, but we've got a bunch of friends in common. Jeff Ike is another one. It was a South Bay guy that uh, is one of the best friends, though, I guess, of, of uh, Jeff Johnson over there. It's pretty cool because those guys, I remember I talked to Jeff uh, back when I did a thing on Jack years ago. And um, when Jeff was still alive and he told me a story about, you know, he sailed his own boat over there. And they, they uh, apparently their mass broke a while, uh, two-thirds of the way through or something oh, like that. Uh, and then he and his buddy who were, he, a, a guy came by the and jumped on to help him. And then uh, they were eating, basically catching fish from underneath the boat for a while before they got to Hawaii. And then the last, uh, I think, four or five days, they ran out of matches, so they had to eat the fish raw. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it it's, it's what people would go through back then just to this get to before, Hawaii. before sushi was cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's interesting stuff. How funny. All right, so I want to get, you know, I want to get a little bit into, because this is the more self-help thing for surfers who really want to stay young and stay active and stay in the water. Did you ever, you know, is it, 
for your own secret, is it just getting out there every day? Is it diet? Is it everything else? I mean, what's been the key to your health and, and you know, what's your morning routine look like these days as compared to 20 years ago, say? Um, I get up every morning and uh, start the coffee and uh, I do just a set of exercises. I do a bunch of crunches in the morning, um, a downward dog, uh, stretch my hamstrings and things like that. Um, we walk a lot, both my wife and I. Um, but I think just surfing as much as I can probably is the thing that keeps me on top of my game. So, you know, I have my routine of things that I do. Doing it as a family was great, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because I, I got to surf with my dad, like I said, until he was 80 years old. That's amazing. That's, what year did he pass? Uh, 2004. Okay. Yeah. And so, and he was, was he 80 when he passed or was he a lot older He was older uh, 83. That? Okay, 83. Yeah, was, yeah. Wow. So he surfed all yeah, the way right to Right before his 80. 84th birthday, yeah. Wow. And, and the thing that was neat for him was... As we grew up, you know, he took care of us making surfboards when we were kids and stuff. Well, later on in life, we were the ones that got deals for him. Wow. So it worked out really good. And, it, you know, it's kind of turnarounds, fair play kind of thing, you know. I kind of cut you off. I want to go back to your collection. Tell me what some of your prized possessions are. Um, I see. I mean, okay, there's probably, everything. Probably my most favorite, my favorite, most uh, collectible board would, would be my, the one that my dad made me. Okay. And I happen to belong to a collector's group. And... Um, I went to a meet up in Huntington Beach one day. I had an old Weber performer I wanted to get rid of. And so I took the board up there and I laid it down and I'm walking down this line of boards and I went, wow, that's my old board. And these two guys are looking at it and they're going, I think it's a safari board. And (laughs) I go, no, I think it's mine. And I knew exactly when there's a, there's a little drawing on the nose of it. Wow. I mean, I I knew it was mine. Did you ever think you would see it again? Never. I never thought I'd see it again. You must have been tripping out. Yeah, I did. It was it was pretty neat. So I ended up having to buy it uh, off of Sam Ryan from down there at the Longboard Grotto. He ended up buying it from whoever found it uh, that day. And uh, so I ended up having to he wanted to he wanted to trade me for memorabilia and. You know, he, he wanted a couple thousand dollars worth of memorabilia, and I'm thinking, well, that's about this much stuff. He's thinking, you know, this much stuff. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up having to just, I just wrote a check for it and just said, you know, because I'd gotten so many yeah. free surfboards over the years uh, from all these great manufacturers and stuff. I thought, I got to have this back. Yeah. So I, I, I happened to have a picture that's, of me with it as a kid. That's a family heirloom. That's a family heirloom. And so I had it reglossed. And somebody had, whoever had the board had knocked off the original fin. Well, my dad still had the original fin template. No so, way. So, um, so I made a, a, a mahogany fin for it and had that put on it. So, wh- how many collectors are there like you in surfing? Because uh, I mean, a I, lot. I, uh, you'd I, be surprised. There's quite a few. Uh, they just had a big event at Doheny um, two weeks ago. And usually it's the first week in uh, December. It's it's called the Vintage Surfboard Collector Club now. It used to be the Longboard Collector mm-hmm. Club. But there's a lot of collectors out there. You'd be like, surprised. There's a lot of guys. When you say a lot, is that 20, 30, 50? Hundreds. Hundreds? Yes. Who have collections as... Uh, I don't know if they're as extensive as mine, but they all have you know, like different people. A lot of guys have good board collections. I, I, yeah, I was going to say, I, I met a guy... Um, uh, Jim, what's his last name? I forget his last name. Anyway, he lives down in Carlsbad. He's got a Wardy collection. All he collects is Wardy surfboards. And wow. he's got this beautiful home. And he's got all the boards displayed throughout his house and stuff. And they're all Wardies, you know, kind of thing. Uh, you get guys that collect just certain brands of boards. I mean, I happen to have a whole bunch of Bings here. I have mm. one Jacobs, and I've got a bunch of Bings. Mm. Uh, when, when surfboards went short... 
surfing San Onofre all the time, I, I, I knew I needed a longboard. So a friend of mine had this, uh, this uh, Nueva Lightweight. Uh, he says, hey, I'll sell it to you for 35 bucks. I went, okay, cool, I'll take it. So I bought it off him for $35. Wow. And then longboard contests kind of came back in in the 80s there. And, and I was still kind of competitive and stuff. And so I thought, oh, I'll just I'll go and compete up there. And so I'd take this old board up there. And the guy, you know, all my, all my friends that I knew from back then were all riding, you know, new, modern, you know. Uh, right, lightweight. Two plus one, yeah. lighter boards and stuff like that. And they're going, and they're kind of snickering going, I th- oh, you're going to ride that old board, huh? Yeah. And I'd take it out there, and then I'd beat them there just going, wow, that thing works magic, doesn't it? I went, it's a magic board. <laughs> so I started seeking out uh, the Bing lightweights, and I've got seven of those now. So I'm going to sidebar you with a story that my oldest brother, I think it was the early 80s, because he kind of stayed into the longboard thing for a while. He put an ad in the Penny Saver in, like, 1982 or so. Just said, wanted old longboards, you know, will pay. Uh-huh. He had old ladies calling him, going, please get this thing out of my garage, right? We had about 15 longboards stashed on the side of our house. I have no, like, he didn't pay for a single one of them. And I know for a fact one of them was a Velzy and something. There was some gold in there, like, but we weren't, we had no idea what we were sitting on. We yeah. rode those things into the ground. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, going, thinking about it because my brother was just visiting for the holiday. Um, he, he's lived in Europe for 25 years now, and we were just recounting that story. And, and man, I just think I told him how much boards are worth now, and he's like, what? <laughs> he's just... It's pretty crazy. Rick Hazard was working for Bill Stewart down here at, the, at his shop, and there was the, the Landell's restaurant was next door, and the parking lot's right behind Stewart's shop. So uh, Rick's going out the back door of Stewart's to go to lunch one day and this this couple comes up and, and this lady goes hey do you know anything about surfboards he goes yeah i work here at the surf shop and and they go hey we got this old board at our house and stuff and and we we're thinking about getting rid of it and stuff you know would you be interested in coming and taking a look at it and he goes yeah just a second let me just grab some money and stuff so he, he went in and he got like 50 bucks you know and so uh uh he, he comes back out and and they drove him over to their house and stuff and they go well it's this old board up here in the in the rafters you know well, it turns out it's a Pacific Systems Homes redwood and balsa wood board. It's similar to the one I have in the living room. And uh, he goes, well, nobody really rides these anymore and stuff. They're just more kind of dust collectors and stuff like that. And he says, I'll give you 50 bucks for it. And, and the lady goes, hey, honey, you want to take $50? Yeah, just give it to him. Let him get it out of here, you know, kind of thing. So he picks up the board for 50 bucks. He brings it down to the shop. He calls up Flippy Hoffman. And he goes, hey, Flippy, I just got this board. I think you might want to come down and take a look at it. So Flippy just instantly drives down, takes a look at it. He sees the thing. He goes, I'll give you five grand for it right now. No and, way. And <laughs> Hazard's <laughs> going, I don't know. I just got it. I think I'm going to hang on to it and see, you know, see, yeah. what, see what really what it's worth, you know, kind of thing. And, this was a Pacific Homes model, yeah, like yeah. Those, those early ones that were – uh, red, hollow red, chambered? Or? No, they weren't hollow chambered. Oh, just... They were redwood and balsa. Okay. Oh, so wow. usually redwood rails and balsa down the center, maybe a T-band down the middle or wow. something like that. And uh, I can show you mine that I have okay. in the house here. But uh, so before Flippy leaves, he's up to ten grand for the thing. <laughs> no way. Oh, my god. <laughs> That's all time. And Rick, and Rick had spent $50 on the thing, you know, just hours before. You know? <laughs> Love it. Love it. It was pretty cool. That and I think cool. he ended up selling it to Flippy eventually. I'm not sure what he got for it, but I thought that was really a good story. Oh, my gosh. That's a great one. That's a great one. But, yeah, people find, you know, just, I mean, people are still finding. Randy Rarick is, is, an, is an incredible guy. 
he um, he does restorations on surfboards, and he'll take, I mean, stuff. I'd, I'd be walking in somebody's backyard and step over something. I'll go, oh, I'll take that one. Wow. You know, and it's just a pile. The thing's just, you know, it's just browned out, and the fin's broken on it or something, you know. And it's you like doing the go, whole American Pickers thing for surfboards. Yeah, exactly. But but Randy takes, and he, he'll, uh, he's got a technique where he takes the glass off the boards, takes a pass with the planer, top and bottom, reshapes them, you know, to their original uh, specs, and then um, he'll put them out in the sun and patina them a little bit, so mm. they get just a little bit yellow, and and then redoes them. These two boards up here are, are redos from Randy. That's amazing. They were both trashed. I mean, just absolute trash. I, I, a friend of mine uh, willed them to me when he passed away, and uh, so Ran- I ended up trading Randy for something to to get those both done, and they just came out great. They look like brand new boards now. So my Randy story is I was working with WSL just last year on this uh, Cuervo project for the Jose Cuervo thing. And, um, you know, got tracked down some old footage of the that era and was going to try to, you know, deal with the whole clearance issue. And talking to Randy because he, he – we interviewed him because he was the director of that comp, you know, and he obviously was very involved. It was the one at Sunset Beach. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, I, I got clearances for you. I still have the entry forms for every single competitor, and it's got it's got the clearance with their signature on it. Like, right. send them over. Um. <laughs> so from 1977, you know, the uh-huh. Jose Cuero classic, and and so when I forwarded those to my legal team, they're like, uh, what are these? I'm like, those are clearances, <laughs> and they're reading it, and they're like, yeah, you're right, they are, and sure enough, worked. Perfect. Yeah, they didn't have to say much back then. No, know? and Randy, I mean, to your point, you know, he's he 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 is the guy on the North Shore, right? He's an incredible guy. Yep. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be able to travel with him over the last few years and stuff too. I get in on some of his surf trips and stuff, and he's so well versed. I mean, he 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 and Fred Hemmings basically started pro surfing, right? You know, kind of thing. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they were they they, <clears throat> they were pivotal. Yeah. Um. Well, listen, Don, this has been an absolute treat, and uh, I'm hoping we will follow up more because I feel like these things, we barely even scratch the surface. Um, but I want to thank you for uh, letting me back in the man cave. I will now be poking around oh, and uh, taking some pictures. <laughs> well, if you ever need anything for reference or anything like that, too, it's, it's always there, too. So Absolutely. And um, I will see you out in the water. Definitely. Yeah, never stop surfing. Well, that was a blast, and I hope you enjoyed this little trip through history with Don. If so, please give this podcast a nice big favorable rank so we can spread it around rapidly. And given the show is quite new and raw, I would really appreciate your feedback, as well as any ideas you might want to throw out there for future guests. My guess is that you've been surfing for quite some time if you're listening to this, and I'd love to hear from you. So please send me a note in the comments and then stay tuned, because there's much more fun ahead. So be sure to subscribe, check us out on the website, look for us on Instagram, and by all means, say hello in the water. I am Chris Morrow, and I'll see you next time.